Good afternoon, students. Welcome back to the lore and histories of the Iron Kingdoms, War Machines, and Hordes. Today we will be continuing our discussion and histories of Cadoran Warcasters. We will be discussing the history books, two versions of Commandant Urisk and Supreme Commander Urisk, both renditions being pre-Lael War and post-Lael War. Also, a side note, we will not be discussing too much on their stats, because with the new Mark IV releases, all of those are probably going to change, so we're just going to be sticking with the lore in the series from here on in. Thank you for the inconvenience. Beginning Commandant Urusk. Commandant Gervalt Urusk was born to wage war. As the chief military advisor to Empress Ein Vanar the 11th, he is the foremost architect of the Gadoran War of Expansion. From the battle magic to combined arms, Urisk mastered every aspect of the modern battlefield. His treatise in tactical warfare, Urisk on Conquest, is required reading at military academies throughout the Iron Kingdoms, and a couple other places if you can get a hold of it and you can translate Kadoran. His accomplishments have inspired generations of Kadoran officers and made his name known throughout Western Amoran. Urisk was born to a prominent military family and trained in the arts of warfare since birth. His mother died when he was young, leaving his father to raise him. The retired soldier imparted to his son his knowledge of battle, his martial skills, and his ruthless persistence. Urisk spent his childhood studying Kadoran military doctrine. He enlisted in the Winter Guard several years before he could be conscripted, and was already an accomplished soldier when his superiors realized his arcane potential. He graduated from Druznia Military Academy with high marks and was recognized as a full warcaster soon thereafter. It was the start of a long and prestigious military career. The invasion of Lael starting in the last weeks of 604 AR cemented Urisk's reputation as the greatest military mind in history. He began to campaign with a series of lightning strikes in the heart of winter. Urisk's attacks on Laudry was the first real-world test of his experimental strategy of annihilation. Urisk Flawless coordinated artillery, heavy infantry, and cavalry to unravel the city's defenders. This devastating rapid siege and similarly successful strikes on Redwall Fortress and Elsenburg, all part of Urisk's master plan, led to the collapse of the kingdom's western defenses. The Kadoran invaders swept into central Lael and seized a large portion of the kingdom almost uncontested. This offensive is now considered the landmark of modern warfare. Attentive to a fault, Urisk is an unrelenting perfectionist whose stern demeanor carries on an air of undeniable authority. He despises political machinations, yet he has a subtle pragmatism to cultivate friendship and alliances within the High Command and even with the Chaosi merchant princes who control the purse strings of the Empire. Urisk stands ready to redraw the old maps and lead his legion to boundless victory. He's also strangely friendly to other military leaders, regardless of country. Kind of like if he was just playing a tabletop board game with them. Strange. Next, we'll move on to Supreme Commander Urisk after his promotion, after success and failure in Lael. The High Command has spoken of Kralt Urisk as the Empire's perfect officer, and his accomplishments have impressed warriors of all creeds and nations. He exercises absolute control over his soldiers, even in the chaos of battle. However, his promotion to Supreme Commandment came on the heels of defeat when served to strengthen his resolve to redeem himself in his sovereign's eyes. 
Ursk's success has never satisfied him. He remains critical of any plan and constantly seeks to perfect his approach to war. Yet even this habit of Frank's self-appraisal did not prepare him for the scathing words of the Empress after his initial failure to recapture Northgard in late 606 AR, during the Second Thornwood War. Her indignant shame him more than any other setback in his lengthy military career. During the short leave he neglected his family home. He realized it was her accusations that he had wasted the lives of his soldiers that troubled him most. As an officer, he had come to measure lives as resources, reducing his compatriots to abstract quantities of force and valuing them too little. Almost like pieces on a tabletop. Uncertain how best to reclaim his honor, Gervalt Urus considered falling on his sword, an act that was considered brave death to a disgraced soldier. He found a well-worn cavalry saber among the neglected relics of his father's military career, and it brought to mind forgotten lessons from his gruff sire. A summons from the Empress stayed Urus Khan, but when he appeared before her, the last thing he expected was that she was promoting him to the rank of Supreme Commandment. Although the ceremony, her eyes bored into him with a message that required no words. His promotion was a challenge, and the Empress would accept nothing less than total victory. Before his march back to Ravensgard, Urisk took his father's old saber in game and had the mechanics at Rivenair. Rigivna, they always have such hard words to pronounce. Rigivna complex set a fine blade into worthy mechanical housing. Urisk wields this weapon as a reminder of his family honor and his promise to deliver victory to the Empress. On his return, he gathered his soldiers to a spot where he stood, illuminated atop the inner ramparts, and told them of the battle to come. Ringing tones in his voice echoed from the sky and quickened the blood in the veins of every listener. A ripple of revitalized enthusiasm spread through the army like a shockwave. When Ursk marched on Northgard for the second time, he did so with the finest force ever assembled by the Cadorn Empire. He led this army with the meticulousness of an artisan. In a single day, the greatest Signarn fortress in North fell, and with it the Thornwood. Ursk personally raised the Cadorn flag in Northgard, an act that sealed his reputation in the greatest military commander alive. This event stands as one of the high points in his career, one still untarnished by certain unavoidable setbacks and subsequent forays into the Thornwood. During battle, Urus coordinates the assets of his forces to move with absolute precision, like thousands of interlocking gears. He has demonstrated time and again his ability to think one step ahead of his foes and make unconventional and unexpected decisions that places soldiers in positions of strength. By his commands, even the worst terrain becomes an advantage. Nonetheless, he must persevere into honing his skills for the wars ahead, since he can never rest until all enemies of the Empire lie broken and submit to the Empress. And that concludes Commander Ursk. He may not be a huge Warjack Warcaster, but he is definitely a very big infantry Warcaster and phenomenal artillery specialist. I fought alongside of him many times in my career, and well, he's always been a no-nonsense kind of commander, so that's pretty much I can tell you about him. Well, it looks like uh, we have a little bit more time, so let's move on to another Warcaster that's uh, well, well-known in Kodor for the past, I don't know, 100 years? He's not mortal, but being stuck in a Warjack chassis, that seems to be the case. 
We, of course, are talking about Karchev the Terrible. For over a century, Commander Alexander Karchev has been crushing the enemies of his beloved nation. After enduring the worst horrors of war, Karchev chose a tortured existence encased within the shell of a warjack rather than accept the peace of death. His sheer brutality, astounding control over warjacks, make him among the most feared Kadoran warcasters. Karchev was already respected Grey Lord Megziv and decorated warcaster of 42 winters when the Thornwood War broke out in 511 AR. He led a large battle group on the west flank during the Battle of the Tongue on the heels of the retreating Signarans. He pushed into the ambush that decimated his forces. Although he was gravely wounded, he knew he could not wait for the arrival of reinforcements. He instead drove forward an assault in the enemy warcasters, Colonel Drake Cathmore. Karchev slowed his foe in the ensuing duel, but a terrible cost to his own body. Despite his horrific wounds, Karchev refused to die, clinging tenaciously to life even though he lay helpless on the field of battle. Eventually he was discovered and returned to the motherland, where his body was mechanically sustained. Though he survived, his shattered limbs could not be saved. Others in his position would have faded into obscurity, but this highly decorated war hero confronted the high command and demanded a machine body be built to let him fight again. A decade later, he was presented with the iron monstrosity built around a modified berserker chassis that combined the life-sustaining machinery he needed with a shell of a warjack. This new body gave Karchev the mobility for which he longed. Over his long years of service, he has taken to the field numerous mechanical forms. The High Command views Karchev as a national treasure, a brilliant arcanist, an officer with more than a century of battlefield experience. The High Command listens when Commander Karchev speaks. Indeed, Supreme Commandant Urus personally chose the commander to accompany him in the final assault of the Signaran Fortress of Northgard, where Karchev cut down General Hygen Kathmore, a descendant of Drake Kathmore. Despite the agony inflicted by the very machinery keeping him alive, the venerable Warcaster has cut a bloody path across Western Amorn. Spending a majority of his life enclosed within the hull of a Warjack has given Karchev a special affinity to his machines, and they serve him more like a pack of hunting wolves than mindless constructs. Karchev is definitely more machine than man anytime I meet him. He's very angry pretty much all the time, of course, whenever you're a quadriplegic who's in constant pain inside a machine and you urge for battle to kill your enemies. I imagine being a happy-go-lucky person doesn't really fit that mental attitude. In fact, I remember hearing a story about him being kidnapped by Crixians who were trying to probe his mind, but they couldn't because he was so full of malice and hatred that his mind was unbreakable, which is saying something if the undead can't probe your mind because of hatred. I don't need to say any more on that. The man is fitting of his name, Karchev the Terrible. Alright, and as the end of us talking about Warcasters, let's see a Ca Old Man Caster versus Supreme Commander Urusk. Would I be able to handle him? Probably. We pretty much evenly spaced most of the time. We both run the same martial prowess, we both run the same defense, we both run the same arm. So I think we'd pretty, be pretty evenly matched. However, he has been training since he was a kid, and he has tactical experience that's probably way beyond my basic understanding, so that does give him quite the edge. And moving on to Karchev the Terrible. Could I take him? Well, 
I wouldn't want to take him hand to hand because one swing, I would be in two pieces. Also, he has the fissure weapon, which is a terrifying weapon that can literally run a fissure in the ground along whatever direction he feels like slamming it and will knock everything out. Knocking down more jacks, units, warcasters alike. He is definitely a very, I don't want to say assassination because that, you know, specifies something sneaky, but he can definitely do some damage and definitely, you know, remove people in one shot. So no, no, I, I don't think I could take him hand to hand. Alrighty class, before we move on to the reading about the next Warcaster, I need to take a little side project. Alright, so these particular scripts I'm about to read, I don't want to say they're incorrect or untrue, but they're created by prophetic writings of a hermit in the location of Hingehold. These writings talk of dark things in the outer arcane and those monstrosities coming in the future to collect our souls as payment for some dark dealings our ancestors made millennia ago, giving them magic. Not sure how much of this is true or not. He was said to be a madman, but somehow these writings are still in the archives, so we're going to read them. Outside of these, he speaks of certain people who changed in the aftermath of these events, uh, if it takes place, including our dear, hatred-filled friend, Karchev. We will be coming back to the Hermit of Hinchhold's writing a lot, and I'll let you know when the characters in question is in this so-called future. Also, for game, these characters can be played in both War Machines and their actual game, Riot Quest. Now, Riot Quest is the story of what if Immorn was ravaged by the Infernals and lost, and what people are doing to survive. A lot of very interesting characters and solos have a lot of different variations outside of their norm, so, of course, we'll be going over all that because this is, of course, a lore podcast. All right, let's talk about what happened to Karchev. Karchev and Deathjack Malignant Fusion. As the world ended at Hingehold, the Grey Lord Karchev the Terrible fell in battle. The Warjack chassis carrying his withered mortal remains was shredded, leaving him to crawl along using his soul-functioning mechanolimb. Yet Karchev was too stubborn to die, as usual. He made a dangerous decision how to survive. In the battle wreckage nearby, Karchev found the remains of the Deathjack, a nightmare helljack of legend. Karchev knew these creatures drew much of its power from the enormous skulls of hate fused to it, which were said to be regenerate its whole. Thus Karchev tore the skulls from the ruined Deathjack and clamped them onto his own metal frame. The fusion of the two created a mechanical horror. Karchev's mind constantly pitted against the Deathjack's horrific intent to control their shared body. Karchev has control, but only for now. The unholy terror they've become cares not for a loot or gear, fortune or glory, it only exists to destroy. Well, as we discussed before, Karchev is not an easy guy to kill even when he's on his dying breath. All right, reading his additional details, Apparently, he has the ability to make his warjacks even more deadly than they already are, making Kodor jacks, which are usually incredibly slow. It almost doubles their base speed, which is phenomenal. He also has a whole list of spells in his, in his repertoire that give everybody some crazy heavy arm, which, of course, Kodor jacks, that would make them almost impenetrable, as well as... Increasing his, increasing his ability to focus on spells and being able to run 
many more warjacks than he did previously, which is saying something because Karchev has always been a very heavy warjack caster. Alright, well let's move on from that disturbing look at Karchev's potential future. Let's move on to Lord Goslau, Viscot of Skalsgard. This is a relatively new warcaster to me since he has not been around all that long, as far as War Machine's game goes. The northern reaches of Kodor are harsh and unforgiving landscape riddled with ice and snow. Only the hardiest men and women call these lands their home. While those of south trouble themselves with large concerns of the empire, the inhabitants of the northern Kodorn are more entrenched in day-to-day -day survival, battling not only the cold, but also the threat of starvation as well as the incursions of beasts native to the mountains and tundras. In the frigid land of Rikar Kozlov, Viscount of Skardsgrad calls home. Born to the Kodorn nobleman and Raskar commoner, Kozlov spent his childhood with his mother's tribe in the wilds of Fedoska Velosk, just beyond the edge of Skarsfell's forest. His days were dedicated to tending the sheep, his nights defending off wolves. The fact that the boy was a Viscount's heir was of no consequence among the fringe people who lived beyond Kodor's courts, and so his upbringing was no different from any other Ruskar children. Kozlov left the northern wilds at the age of ten, summoned by his father to the town of Skarsgrad and Kozlov's family seat. There the boy learned the ways of nobility and the art of civilized combat and was gradually shaped into a credible heir for his proud family. The Kozlovs have long history of service to the Iron Fangs, and in the time Kozlov too underwent the demanding training regiment of the distinguished fighting tradition. He learned to fight with shield and blasting pike, to face warjacks in melee combat, and to command warriors to the greatest effect in battle. Even the manifestation of Kozlov's warcaster powers made it necessary for him to leave their ranks for training at the Druzania Military Academy. His commitment to the Iron Fangs remained strong. This warcaster talent and Kozlov's combat prowess has made him the greatest asset to the Kadoran military. Though his heart remains with the people of his ancestral home as a vassal of the stern great prince and Kuldan Lord Faravazi Deskra, Kozlov sometimes shafts the military responsibilities to keep him continually on the move, often far from his lands. Walking the line between his obligations to the Kadoran army, the desires of Lord Deskra, and his own convictions can prove difficult, but Kozlov has adapted to his role as a Viscount. His loyalty to the motherland is unquestionable, and above all else, he is a man who respects all traditions among the diverse people who inhabit Kodor's vast empire. Since inheriting his title upon the death of his father, Kozlov has taken a keen interest in local matters when time permits. He pays close attention to the relations between Skazgrad and the Raskar and other Kadorans living in the surrounding wilds. His parentage and upbringing give him a particular insight into the ways of these cultures can come into conflict. A man's simple conviction who prefers to avoid overblown politics, Kozlov becomes restless when required to attend court for long. At these times, Kozlov cannot help but think fondly of the cold simplicity of his homeland, where the deeds of the brave speak louder than words. And we can all agree the problems of the rich are a lot more boring than the problems of just surviving. Kozlov 
would be an amazing opponent to fight. Appears that he is phenomenal in melee, which would make sense if he was trained by the Iron Fangs. He's crazy nimble, even though he wears some heck of power armor. And he's actually just a super well-rounded warcaster. Pretty good at anything, good in a scrap, good outside of scrap. His memorized spell set is phenomenal to keep control of what's going on around him. How bad his chosen boys? He's just a good, solid warcaster. Could I in my heyday take him on? Yeah, probably. I have a little bit more reach on him, so that's probably my only upside, but as far as that, really just gonna be pretty much straight back and forth, so who knows. All right, moving on to something a little different. Andrei Malakov. So Andrei actually started off as a journeyman warcaster and has since worked his way up to the rank of a full warcaster. So we're going to start with his journeyman warcaster days and then we'll go up to his full-fledged warcaster days. Kovnik Andrei Malakov. A star among the Raskoviks in one of the most recent classes of Drizinia. Kovnik Andrei Malakov pushes the Warjacks under his control to crush those who dare to oppose him. His desires to succeed regardless of the consequences sometimes demand a high cost from his men and machines. But Malakov, such a price, is victory. Getting a very old school Urusk on that. Born to the son of a Kardec Count and raised near the city of Rushik, Malakov comfortably navigates the world of Ghidorin political intrigue. He was taught the superiority of noble blood and learned early on to apply his intelligence to improving his position whenever possible. And that requires his inferiors to fall into his place, whether in battle or in the eyes of his commanding officers. He sees that as the natural order of things. He definitely is the kind of person that he never gets anything wrong. It's always other people's fault. With his family standing, there was no question Malakov would enter the military as an officer. The Grey Lords of Vorstuk detected his arcane aptitude immediately, and he went to their stronghold for the early portions of his training. By the time he transferred to Dresnia for officer training, his confidence in his abilities only added to his ambition. For someone with lesser births or talents, this arrogance might have been a hindrance, but for Malakov, it enhanced his aura of command. He demonstrated excellence in the most essential qualities demanded by the Kadoran officers. Though he received the highest scores in his evaluation, Malakov was a loner among the cadets, which he blamed on his classmates' jealousy. The only one worthy of his companionship was a senior cadet, Levanid Trevanik, whose father was a great prince of Doronia Valask and Count Malakov's liege. Oh, so his dad's boss. That makes sense. The two cadets became fast friends despite their strongly differing personalities. When great prince Tavanak was later executed for treason, young Levanad became the region's ruler. A situation Malakov could not help but consider in terms of how he might eventually benefit from it. He graduated from Dresnia primed to stand in the upper echelons of Kadoran society, as befitting his birthright. All that remained was him to prove himself in battle and commence a glorious military career. After his graduation, Kalevra was promoted to Kovnik and given the arcane standing as Rastoviks the rank in which junior warcasters is traditionally sent into the field before earning the responsibilities of a full commander and massive. At this stage, every warcaster must prove capable in command alongside a battle group. 
leading subordinates while operating without direct supervision. Melikov's standing and reputation earned him singular honor of a special mission, delivering the first new conquest to Supreme Commandant Ursk in hostile territories. Though Malakovs handled himself well, the mission's complications provided a harsh lesson on the gulf between theoretical training and the realities of war. In many respects, Malakov views people the same way he sees his warjacks, as disposable means to an end. Friendships and loyalties have little value to him. He is an adorant manipulator, able to switch smoothly from charm to intimidation in any situation. Malakov's ruthlessness is reflected in his cold intellect in battle. No sacrifice is too great in his quest for victory, and it is likely many soldiers will find themselves placed in the path of bullets meant for him. His superiors might overlook his apparent disregard for those serving under him. However, so long as he brings glory to the motherland, they're probably all right with it. Could I beat this journeyman warcaster in a fight? Absolutely. There's something being said about experience in battle. And items you learn in battle, you know, like not to be hit. Because if this guy's on his own, doesn't have anybody to pull in front of him, he's as good as target practice. Now that's slightly different from his next inclinations. Commander Andrei Malakov. Commander Andrei Malakov has developed into a ruthless but eminently capable young officer. In his first few years as a full warcaster, Malakov has secured several victories for the motherland through unconventional tactics. Despite the prestige earned through his military accomplishments, he has become known as for spilling Kadoran blood in the vainglorious execution of his assignments. To Malakov, the lives of the motherland soldiers are expendable. Driven by bold self-confidence, he has no qualms about ordering artillery strikes close to his own lines or pushing feints to their limits despite casualties. In one instance, he executed enemy soldiers after they surrendered because he could not spare the men to watch them. His actions prompted an inquest by high command, but the charges were dropped. After Malakov's successful completion of his Rasavat training mission, delivering the conquest of the front lines, he was placed under the command of Supreme Commandant Gervalt Ursk. Some believe Malakov used his friendship with Great Prince Levinid Trevenik to arrange this appointment. Malakov gained combat experience in several major battles against Signar before Kordor withdrew from the Thornwood, and more recently against Lely's resistance. The young warcasters seek not simply to emulate, but exceed Urus, developing his own more aggressive doctrine. It's like Urus. But if Ursk was more fearful to get hit. Although Malakov has not been formally reprimanded by high command, his methods have drawn scrutiny and criticism from fellow officers. Rather than focusing on improving relations with those who do not approve of his tactics, Malakov has surrounded himself with ambitious subordinates from influential families who are eager to curry his favor. It is unclear whether Malakov's notices or cares that the moral of his soldiers continues to erode. While some have adapted to his approach to war and admire his resolve, many others have requested transfer adding to his dubious reputation. Urus continues to hold the young warcaster in high regard, not yet aware of the extent of Malakov's ambition and the extremes he is willing to embrace in order to succeed. 
Kodor has seen warcasters with the talent and tactical insight Malakov possesses, but his methods may as well come back to hunt both him and the motherland. When at all cost, regardless of who dies, it seems like the longer this guy's out in the field, the more tactics he's going to come for dirty fighting. So that would probably even the playing field. He's also a lot more dodgy now than he used to be when he was a kid. It's almost like he knows how to dodge a bullet now. Although, word on the street though, with the people he surrounds himself with, he teaches them tactics like dirty fighting and, you know, throat cutting and how to sneak around behind the enemies in a very unconventional sense. Well, at least he's developed his own fighting styles. So, that's to be said about him. Good job. Alrighty, moving on to the Old Witch of Kodor and Scrapjack. Kodor's primal forests stretch across land soaked in memory and blood. The stories of peasants hold truth from time immemorial. Such accounts speak of a wizened hag, prim, evil, and terrible, who has advised chieftains, monarchs, and princes, and has influenced the decisions that have shaped Kodor for millennia. All too often, folk tales and superstitions are dismissed, but peasants of the Cardic Sea to Old Umbri know the old witch has watched them for countless generations. Though her origins are long lost, tales of the old witch still circulate by firesides across Kodor. The oldest stories are retellings of Mulgar myths about a hunched and shriveled creature of shadow, a thing of slaughter that drank deeply of the blood of the fallen and feasted upon human flesh. Legends from the time of the Kardarvik describe an ugly old woman of untold power advising the priest king and his council. The old witch appears in hundreds of later stories demonstrating her subtle guidance of the northern people of western Amorin. Some of the oldest Skirovite tales speak of a time when Meneth himself walked the world and found the old witch in her cave, waiting for him. She is known by many names, but the most common name is Zavina Aga, the old witch of Kodor. Few accounts describe her in detail, but most agree of certain particulars. She appears as a decrepit hunchback woman of ancient years, supporting herself with a walking staff, bearing a writhing sack on her twisted shoulders her fingers ending in sharp metal talons. It was not until after the formation of the Iron Kingdoms the stories began to mention her companion, a primitive steam jack cobbled together by her own hand. Built during the infancy of warjack development from parts of wrecks left on various battlefields, the scrapjack is a mechanical beast of burden that serves the old witch faithfully. She tinkers with it and adds improvements from time to time. For example, it bears an arcane relay scavenged from the ruins of the first Thornwood War. Uh, for those of you that don't know, that is a, a what Warcasters call an arc node now. and allows you to cast spells, but the point of contact is actually from the Warjack rather than yourself, giving you a more flexible range. Kodor Warjacks do not possess this particular piece of technology because it's very advanced and it's very, very resource consuming. And of course, Kodor doesn't have access to a lot of very fine-tuned pieces of technology like that. The old witch's occult powers are primal and ancient, but she has had no trouble adapting to the mechanica of modern warfare. She commands warjacks with the same arcane prowess that draws the crows of the forest to serve her, and causes the iron claws of the earth to rend her enemies. To her, even the most advanced machines are but puzzles, and she has long been adept to solving them. One legend maintains that Svednad Skorvoru declared himself the first emperor of Kard at her behest and that she has appeared to every Kodor monarch since. The tale claims she hammered the gold and iron from the weapons. 
of the slain chieftains into the first cardic crown and had horned it with red jewels, powerful enchantments, and human blood. She openly opposed the Orgoth in cardic lands, killing them whenever she found them and washing her talons in their blood to deny power to their dark gods. The journals Exart Voltor Tridestif, lifelong confidant of King Ived Venar, tell of how mere days after Ivad assumed the throne, a time-worn crown came uninvited to him in his garden. No one knows the full extent of the bargain struck between Ivad and his visitor. The king would reveal only that the safety of the motherland would be guaranteed for generations to come, but secret orders were passed down to his generals ensuring their cooperation with the witch. The old witch has been active with regularity in the modern era, often accompanied by soldiers and warjacks by the command of the Empress Zavina Aga, has the right to requisition troops and materials when and where she requires. Most often she relies on the Third Border Legion, whose cagey and battle-scarred officers are accustomed to her strange demands. And they are strange. She has long meddled in the lives of Kodor's noble bloodline and the Tabeski's lineage in particular has drawn her attention. For centuries her careful ministrations have guided their wars, lives, marriage, and children, culminating in their current heir, Prince Vladimir Tabeski. As the last of his line, a heavy doom was laid upon him at birth. The old witch waited until he nearly sacrificed his life in a valiant battle against Crix to reveal his destiny to him, and she has since watched and smiled as fate has tightened its grasp upon him. Far more active now than at any time since Orgot's occupation, the old witch has moved beyond the shadows of history to directly intervene in the affairs of the motherland. The world now knows the truth by which generations of Kadoran peasants have lived. The motherland has a spirit, a face, a form, a wicked crone with iron claws. You know, for the longest time, meeting that old, old lady on the field of battle who is, you know, her voice is, well, creepy, clattery, kind of like a crow. But for the longest time, I always thought she wore, like, you know, metal gauntlets with those fingers. But no, I think those are actually her fingertips. Like, she has talons, like a bird. Whatever she is, she's immortal and probably not human, or at least not anything we would consider human. I've worked with her several times, and, you know, it's always memorable working with somebody that can disappear one grove of trees and pop up, I don't know, a couple hundred yards later. Somebody who can make the ground rile up and snag anybody trying to run across it. Somebody who has the power to make entire units just disappear in the thin air. She's definitely a master of the natural arts. I'm surprised she's not a druid. All right, moving on to the newest rendition of The Old Witch. Let's start off with her quote. Strands of fate I twist and weave, and many will be left to grieve. Having released the godlike defiers from Urkane to suit her own ends, Zivana Aga has many plans in motion. Only time will reveal her true goals. But for now, she is content to join the chaos the Grim can bring. Her hope is that those fated for greatness will be strengthened by the crucible of the wicked harvest, and that the defiers will aid in forestalling an otherwise imminent doom. Alrighty, there's a lot to unpack here since you know you have no idea what the Grimkin are. But basically, the Grimkin are people that have been living in the Urkane, a.e. the afterlife, in those wild spirit lands that uh, Orboros lives in. You know, the Great Devourer from the Druids? Well, apparently, the creatures that survive there, she's led into Urkane, which is the realm we live in, the actual world. And as the archives say, she's let them in to strengthen 
the ones fated for greatness against otherwise imminent doom. I'm curious if this might have anything to do with the ramblings of the man from Hengehold, but time will only tell. Also speaking about this particular version of her, she's taken her little tiny scrapjack that used to follow her around and amped him up, making him larger than most warjacks that she can actually ride on top of as like a giant bird. She also has developed her powers enough that she can actually she can actually give herself uh, even more advanced abilities on top of her already decimating spells. Uses lots of crows in her powers now. And yeah, she is now a monstrosity on the battlefield on a huge, huge jack. But now she splits her loyalties between the Kadoran Empire and the Grimkin hordes, respectively, to suit whatever ends she's trying to get. She's weaving her own fates. Now we'll be moving on to another warcaster who's very well known in Kodor. And we actually have her profile before she even became an actual warcaster. Of course, that warcaster is Kovnik Apprentice Sorska Kratikov. The woman who had become known as one of Kodor's greatest warcasters entered military service young, lying to recruiters to get into Winter Guard two years before normal eligibility. By the time her warcaster talents was recognized, she was already a battle-hardened veteran. Awakened to her talent after death of her superior officer, she was impatient to put training behind her and do her part for the Motherland's War. She inspired her soldiers with her courage and heroics, ever inclined to close with the enemy as quickly as possible. This particular young version of Sorska, she was really good with her Winter Guard officers. She always made sure they were always on their feet, ready for battle. Uh, looks like her retinue of spells, of course, for a young Warcaster was very limited. Um, she was able to make her Warjacks be able to run over any terrain, charge the enemy as quickly as possible. And she could develop her own fog around her that would help shade her, shade her allies from enemy fire. So she's very helpful at that point. Luckily for the enemies of Kodor at that time, she did not have her mechanical hammer yet that she has become so adept to using on poor enemies. Right, let's move on to her commander, Sorska. When a teary-eyed Sorska Kratikov looked into her father's face at the age of 13 winters and asked to be a soldier like him, he just smiled, stroked her black hair, and strode out the door to join his unit. Later that month, her mother received word of a massacre at Boar's Gate. Sorska's father lay among the dead, killed by Orzus Zaktever, the butcher of Kardov. Two years later, Sorska lied about her age and joined the Winter Guard. She fought against all odds and excelled as a soldier, surviving the rigors and mayhem of war, fueled by the image of her father's bloody end. Sorska served three consecutive tours of duty with the prestigious border garrison of Ravensguard and participated in frequent bloody conflicts with Lael mercenaries and her Signaran counterparts. She demonstrated considerable natural tactical prowess and was chosen for officer training at Druznia in course before returning to her men as a lieutenant. She advanced quickly through the ranks to Captain and Kovnik. The warcaster named Turizvik valued her opinion above those of his other officers and chose her to serve as an aide. Perhaps some part of her felt an affinity with armored machines even before she demonstrated her gift for warcasting. Sorska had already shown hints of inborn sorcery but had kept them to herself. First she has been raised in the rural borders area where those powers prompted superstition and dread. 
Her true potential surfaced during the conflict near the Ordic border, where Torisvik was slain in an ambush and his jack suddenly fell dormant. In desperation, Sorska charged unescorted into combat. She cut men down like stalks of grain, but her troops were demolished and she found herself far outnumbered. One foe sliced her thigh and she fell. Suddenly, the world froze. Everything around her, including her enemies, stood encased in a layer of ice and frost. Leaning against one of the nearby juggernauts, she found herself able to reach into its mind. She reactivated its cortex by mimicking an arcane sequence her untrained vision had perceived from her commander. Sent forth at her bidding, the warjack charged into her adversaries. Days later, Sorsha Kretikov was presented to the high command in her queen, Korsk. Her new talents were quickly put to the test and it was decided that she would receive training in controlling her sorcery and warcaster ability from the enamic and gifted Umbrian prince Vladimir Tepesky, who had earned a reputation as a peerless tutor in the arts. In her years of study with the nobleman, she fell in love. She saw in him ancient nobility, a deep sense of duty and devotion to the memory of his ancestors. This began an off-and-on romance that had a profound effect on both warcasters. Both have always known their romantic relationship to be doomed given the gulf of their status and the roles in the military, yet this has not diminished her, their feelings for one another. When they are apart, Sorska often becomes emotionless and aloof, pouring her strength and concentration into the task at hand. Those who see her at these times would never suspect an andor lingering beneath the iron discipline and unfaltering dedication as the model Kadorn soldier and officer. Only the infrequent presence of the Dark Prince Vladimir can thaw Sorska's soul, but for a moment. Icy resolve and loyalty to the motherland, she was once heard to say, these are what make good soldiers, not warmth and comfort. Despite these words, there seems little doubt her fate is tied to Dabeski by a cord that will not easily be broken. I've had lots of experience with Commander Sorska. Honestly, she was one of the first warcasters I was actually accompanied with whenever I was in the field. And when they say she freezes everything around her, they are not kidding. She literally, like, freezes them to the spot. Like, they just turn into icicles in a second. Uh, she's also has that fog ability we talked about earlier, which, you know, uh, any, any protection from enemy gunfire, always useful for me. Also, her, she was actually presented with her magical hammer, which, I don't know if you ever hidden something frozen with a hammer, but if she runs up to a, say, a warjack or a soldier and hits them while they're frozen, they literally just break into pieces. It is remarkable and disturbing. But being around her is definitely cold. Even if you're in a warm climate, it's going to be cold. Also, how did the archives figure out her relationship with Tedeschi? I suppose those guys just follow people everywhere, whether they know it or not. Moving on to forward Commander Sorska. Sorska Kratikov learned to live with loss at a young age. When her father died, she resolved to feel nothing and hid her pain. When she witnessed Winter Guard comrades killed and maimed, she placed all her grief behind her icy exterior. Slowly, she grew numb to the suffering around her, feeling little even when her own troops died or when innocents stumbled into the path of war. Throughout her career, Sorska moved among officers descended from nobility. Given her peasant upbringing, she's chaffed at their arrogance and entitlement and drove her feelings of resentment even deeper. Only Vladimir Tabeski, a great prince, gave her honest and open words of a man without pretense. 
To her surprise, she found in him the only man to open her heart since the death of her father. Vladimir's enemies among the Kiazi were quick to take advantage of such vulnerabilities, spreading rumors of improper conduct and even whispers of sedition. The occupation of Lael brought great suffering and loss, and not just to the people of the war-torn nation. Amid the worst fighting, Vladimir Tepesky vanished, an apparent victim of Christian violence. Duty alone kept Sorshko from riding out to find him. Soon the Kiazi began questioning her competence, his habits, and even his loyalty to the motherland, as if his past accomplishments meant nothing. Sorshka yearned to hunt down these cowards who were spreading these lies. Promoted to forward commander, she was assigned a cadre of hand-picked winter guard and ordered to shed southern blood. Sorshka and her battalion tore into those who opposed the Kadoran Empire. Compelled by duty as much as her need to unleash her violence in her heart, her fury was like that of a goddess of frost and death. When Vladimir returned, he came to her before any other. The hope she had thought was crushed by his death returned in the time they spent together. But this reunion was brief. Commandant Urus called Sorshka back to the duty in Eastern Lael. By the time she returned on leave, Vladimir had been summoned to war. Soon after, Sorshka was recalled to Ravensgard. She quickly concluded that the High Command wished to separate them. As the months of constant battle passed, Sorshka's thoughts darkened, causing her to channel her frustration into combat, where she fought like a woman possessed. A number of developments in the last few years have made it difficult for Sorshka to maintain a sharp divide between her military and personal life. During the Second Thornwood War, she thought herself free of the man who had murdered her father as she had witnessed a grievously wounded butcher of Kardov fall beneath the onslaught of sword knights and did not intervene. Some months later, he emerged from the woods alive, to the surprise of all. Sorshka and Supreme Commandant Urisk exchanged words that suggested he knew what she had done, but he did not punish her. He saw that Orsev Zuckerfir's survival was punishment enough. Recently, she also learned that, for political reasons, her true love became betrothed to someone else a rival beyond all others, the Kadoran Empress herself. While she knew her relationship with Vladimir Tabeski was ill-fated from the start, this developed was almost more than she could bear. Sorshka's patriotism still drives her, but it is increasingly ellipsed by the darkness growing in her heart. She does not care why the motherland asked her to fight, only where she can find a few moments of peace and the clarity of action. I've also worked with this particular version of of Sorshka. I always wonder why, you know, even though she was cold the first time I met her, she was even colder at this time. In fact, she was so cold that if you just walk up next to her, you had a chance of actually freezing to the spot just by being near her. Now, I don't know anybody that cold, but my goodness, that is cold. Also, she had the unique ability that if things were in her range of influence, she could actually increase the output of damage even beyond that of a normal normal sword or hammer like like it was like they were being hit with some magical weapon even though it was just a regular old sword it could chop in half an enemy warjack in a slice it was amazing not even sure how she did it i'm glad i wasn't on the receiving end all right last rendition of sorshka and then we'll probably have to end class since it is already getting kind of late commandant sorshka kratikov having risen to the rank of commandant at an unprecedented age, Sorska Kratikov has been tasked with commanding a full might of Kodor's new man-of-war division. Sorska began her new assignment, spending several months undergoing the rigorous training to control man-of-war armor. A unique hybrid of warcaster armor and man-of-war armor specially designed for her frame and combat 
Commandant Sorska is an avalanche in the storm. Her command to the winter magics allows Sorska's man of war to perform flanking and ambush maneuvers never before seen with those steam-powered soldiers. Sorska goes to where the fighting is thickest, laying waste to man and machine alike. I've worked with this particular version of Sorska every now and again. Uh, take everything she has, including her strength, and double it. Even though she might be slightly slower in speed, she makes up for it with her ability to move and outflank pretty much anybody with soldiers that should not be able to move and outflank anybody. And on top of that, she can create many freezing storms all across the field of battle, and her fog is now on all the time, regardless if she's maintained it or not. It just kind of just is created just being near her. I'm going to say it's because she's so cold. You know, it's some kind of like weird steam cold thing, like a fog or a mist, but I'm not entirely sure, but anything helps when you're in that Man of War armor. At least uh, probably doesn't have to worry about overheating with her around in that Man of War armor. Alrighty class, that about does it for today. It looks like next week we will continue going over all the Warlocks of the Circle Oberos. And then the following week we will finish up all the rest of our Warcasters for Kodor. And then of course we get to move on to our Warjacks and war beasts. Alrighty, well homework today of course is tell your friends, tell your fellow gamers, tell whoever. Listen to the podcast, learn more about the Iron Kingdom's lore of Western Amoran and further out. Alrighty, we'll see you next week. Class dismissed.